With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by HBO and the documentary series The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sunday at 8 only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of March 9th, 2015. On this week's show, Ken Pomeroy will join us to talk about the state of college basketball, why games have slowed to a crawl, and whether the sport needs an overhaul. We'll also discuss the decline and fall of the running back in professional football, whether anything can be done to bring the position back to its former glory. We'll interview Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris about his series of short sports documentaries for ESPN under the rubric, It's Not Crazy, It's Sports. And in our mm-hmm. bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Jim Beheim and Syracuse basketball malfeasance. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Did you say Syracuse or Syracuse? Did you say I the said, Z? I, I think I said Syracuse. Use the Z. The but Z a lot sound. of people say Syracuse. Right. I say Syracuse. Syracuse. <laughs> people from out west often say Syracuse. Right. So it's pronounced like sea urchin abuse. Yeah. I pronounce it Jacques, <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> With us from New York, it's Mike Pasca, host of Slade's Daily Podcast, The Gist. With Mike Pesca did not and go a purveyor of French accusations. <laughs> and did not go to Syracuse. Truth lavor. No, I've been to Syracuse many times. I covered, the, I covered the, uh, the Empire State games in Syracuse. Oh, yeah. One, oh, I was there during the Empire State. I don't think I covered Not, not the same ones that I covered in 1981. Maybe. I know I didn't <laughs> When I was 18 years old. But they had boxing, like high school boxing in the Empire <laughs> State games. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's yeah. where I, I was introduced to team handball. Really? Yeah, 1981 Empire my State friend, Games. My friend who's now a philosophy professor was on the New York State team handball team. No. For Long Island, yeah. maybe they, I think they lost the Hudson Valley 8-9 to nine in that leg of their leg. <laughs> the Long Island region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you might have heard, we're part of a brand new podcast network called Panoply. No uh, team handball podcast yet. Stefan is working behind it's not the that scenes. Much, it's not that much of a panoply. It's sort of a <laughs> limited panoply. Uh, at Slate, we believe in this medium of podcasting, except for Mike Pesca, who isn't sure about it. He's kind of got one arm in. Um, but the rest of us are totally on board. We're building the sucker out. In addition to all the Slate shows you know and love, we partnered up with New York Magazine's Vulture Food 52, which has a podcast called Burnt Toast. Real Simple is in there, Inc., New York Times Magazine, a bunch more. You can hear... Happier. Gretchen Rubin's Happier, my new favorite. Uh, happier 
from Gretchen Rubin, Mike Pesca's favorite. You can hear Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on all major podcast apps. To hear some of the first offerings of the Panoply Network, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. You do not need to know how to spell Panoply to listen to Panoply Podcast. You but. do need to spell it to sign up. Just at least once you need to know how to spell mm-hmm. it. So it's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y, iTunes.com slash Panoply. Can I have a language of origin? It's uh, Greek. I'm going to say Greek. I'm going to say Greek, too. Uh, a goat, a goat man, uh, a, a man with legs of goat. Can you use it in a sentence? Oh, you just did. All right. The college basketball regular season is over, and the sport's biggest story is Kentucky's quest for an undefeated season. It's always a quest for an undefeated season. It's not a journey. It's a quest. Uh, this would be the first since Indiana did it in 1976, but all is not happy. Not the first quest. Not the first quest. The first. <laughs> many times. The first successful su- success quest. Uh, all is not happy in college hoops land, though. Um, Sports Illustrated has a feature by Seth Davis called Crisis on the Court. Why college basketball needs an extreme makeover. ESPN's Jeff Goodman has a piece headlined The, uh, the Poor Health of College Basketball. Um, Mike, I think I'm going to need a college basketball Crisis on the Court theme song. I got I got a voice. I got crisis on the court, court, court. Dun, 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 dun. We've got special graphics here that you can't see. College basketball in crisis. Um, the problem yeah, is the word the- crisis has come crashing through the court, and all the hardwood has gone in shards. <laughs> and one of the shards has impaled a referee and a, a doughy faced cheerleader boy. A doughy faced cheerleader boy. Interesting <laughs> yeah. word word order there. But we but we press on. The problem is that the game is slowing down. Teams accruing the fewest possessions per game since Ken Pomeroy started tracking that stat 13 years ago. Uh, teams are averaging a mere 67 and a half points per game. That's around the level from 1952, long before the days of the shot clock. Joining us to discuss whether we are in fact in the midst of a crisis that requires theme music is Ken Pomeroy, whose website, KenPom.com, should be your first stop for college basketball statistics and analysis. Ken, how are you weathering this crisis? <laughs> I'm hanging in there, guys. Thanks for having me on. So um, first, let's establish, is college basketball, in fact, slowing down? It is. It is slowing down. That is That part is undeniable. Um, this year, we're averaging 64.9 possessions per game. And that's probably a, an all-time low. I mean, we don't have you know, the kind of data that we have now. We don't have that data going back to like the 40s and 50s, but we can look at other things like how many shots were attempted and basically how many shots were attempted against that. You know, that gets you pretty close to the answer. And, you know, in olden times, you know, people just took shots willy-nilly and didn't really care whether they are taking a good shot or not. And, you know, the first shot they got, they took. So, in olden times, games were really fast-paced, and as time has gone on and the game's gotten more structured, um, we've definitely seen a, a decrease in possessions, and uh, you know, that's especially apparent over the last 10 or 12 years to get to the place we're at. Is there any other way to increase the pace of play other than shot selection? Uh, what about just running? What about full-court pressing? I mean, I, there is other ways, but you're saying that's not what's going on. It's just shot selectivity. Uh, I mean, that's part of it. You know, offenses are more controlled. You know, the defense is, is playing a role as well in that coaches over the years have gotten a lot more cautious about crashing the offensive glass. I mean, that's a noticeable trend over the last 15 years where basically you know, offensive rebounding is in steady decline. But teams are, are trying to prevent transition as opposed to, to get second shots. So more and more possessions are in the half court. You know, teams have gotten more physical. So when you're in the half court, you know, defenses are – Clutching and grabbing way more than they did 20 years ago. Those are factors as well. It's, yeah, it's really – it's hard to speed it up you know, when, when the defense has that kind of physical advantage, which it appears they have at this point. So this is not merely a function of – I mean, it's certainly not a function of the shot clock because that seems to be something that a lot of people latch on to, that college basketball has a 35-second shot clock. It's the longest in the world, basically. And yet – up until the nineteen, the mid nineteen eighties, there was no shot clock. You know, we had we had we talked about uh, Dean Smith and the four corners and stall ball in the seventies and eighties, and yet we've seen a decline since then. If you had to sort of trace the history of the changes in the game that have led to this um, slower and lower scoring basketball, what would they be? Yeah, we, we should point out you know the last crisis in college basketball really was the early eighties when um, teams got a lot better at ball handling. 
know, they were able to milk the clock for minutes at a time when they got a lead. And, you know, that's the reason the shot clock came about. And the shot clock did provide a boost in pace initially. Um, but it was basically temporary. And, you know, over time, we more than compensated for it. I, I do think, you know, lowering the shot clock would, would help things. It's not, it's obviously not just the shot clock and other things have to happen in concert with that. But no doubt, you lower the shot clock from 35 to 30. And I think you'll initially get more possessions. Um, if you do that, with the thought in mind of uh, reducing physical play or reducing the number of charges called, making it more difficult for secondary defenders to step in and take charges. Um, I think that will help as well. So I think all these things are solutions to kind of dial back the game to, you know, where it was 20 years ago when the game was less physical, there were fewer charges taken. It was more fast break action. Um, the game, you know, I think the game is fun now, but I think it was more fun to watch 20 years ago. The thing that um, is another common explanation is that coaches are just huge control freaks, which I think is certainly true. But if you look at college football, there's nobody more control freaky than a college football coach. And the trend in that sport is to play faster. Not every coach, but there's a huge number who are at least experimenting in that way. And there's been a lot of success with uh, teams playing faster. So I don't think that the explanation can solely be then the college basketball coaches exert more control than they ever have. That doesn't really make sense to me. But the other thing that I don't understand is um, ESPN, the magazine, Jordan Brenner noted that only three top 10 teams this year, um, Duke, Arizona, and Louisville, I guess at, at that point, the story was written, Louisville was in the top 10, are among the 100 fastest squads um, in terms of pace. And my sense is that if you play faster, it's to the advantage of the better teams because you have more possessions. And if you're better on a per possession basis, then it's, you know, you, you're going to want to play faster. So the question is, if, if that is in fact correct, why don't better teams play faster? Yeah, I think people figured out that that sounds great in theory, but I don't know if people figure this out. But I, my personal opinion is that sounds great in theory, but it's not so great in practice. I mean, you might get a marginal benefit. You know, the difference we're talking about here is like the slow-paced teams, like a Virginia's playing, you know, 58 possessions per game, and a fast-paced team, you know, like Iowa State is right around 70 possessions per game. So The difference is bigger than in football in terms of like the fast teams and the slow teams. There's an issue, too, of like playing a style you're comfortable with and having the personnel to play that way. I mean, Wisconsin can't, they're not going to play at 70 possessions with the personnel they have. They would be a worse team. So, it's more comfortable for them to play at a slow pace. You said about Virginia too. You know, Iowa State has personnel to run. They would be a worse team at a slow pace. It really, I think, there's much more influence in terms of the personnel you have as opposed to the style of play. And if you try to force style of play on your personnel, you reduce whatever advantages you might have by playing faster. Well, I also think that defense is at such a premium. So your top three adjusted defensive teams are Kentucky, Virginia, Arizona. Guess what? That's Oh, it's not the exact order of the top three overall teams. It is in the AP poll. You have Kentucky, Arizona, then Virginia. Okay, so Virginia plays really slow. Arizona plays pretty fast. Kentucky plays rather slow. However, I do think if you did a scatter graph about pace of play and just quality of defense you do see the slower teams playing more quality defense i'd like your thoughts on that and i do think it has something to do with you know how a coach preaches great defense and i think it's easier to communicate and execute great slow down defense than great up-tempo defense great up-tempo defense pressing the ball amoeba defense this sort of thing seems a little bit harder and especially a little bit harder to execute given the uh, personnel that you're dealing with in college and as a correlator to that ken if playing good defense is something to be valued how much can we factor that into what's happened that you know, coaching good defense is probably just as important as coaching good offense. So maybe that's an overall trend that's really not of great concern, that it is just part of the game and, and we should accept that. Yeah, so there's no doubt. I mean, the defense is important. It's, I think, historically probably equally as important as offense. I don't think defense wins championships per se. I think you have to have both to win championships. But yeah, there's no doubt defense is important. And the scatter plot of Slow defenses versus effective defenses generally trends in the direction of you know making teams work longer offensively improves your defense. But it's it's a really general trend, and I think the reason you don't see more let's say aggressive defenses is you need 
depth to do that. And few teams have the kind of depth to, uh, you know, press uh, frequently. I mean, you still see some teams do it. West Virginia's done it this year. Arkansas has done it this year. I mean, both those teams play up tempo. Both those teams will be in the NCAA tournament. So there are teams that do that effectively and have decent defenses. But by and large, people have, you know, trended towards the pack line approach of, you know, that we've seen from Tony Bennett or, or Sean Miller this year, where they're going to protect the lane from penetration at all costs. That just naturally creates a slower game. You know, you don't see a ton of turnovers. You see a lot of passing on the perimeter. Uh, we're seeing more zone this year. And that's a trend. And that's the thing we have to be careful about when we, you know, talk about lowering the shot clock because, you know, if you lower the shot clock, the incentive only increases to play more kind of zone-type defenses, and that will not push the game in the direction that, that I think it needs to go. And it's, sort of like, it's a fair question. Maybe, you know, maybe defensive basketball is good. I mean, that's just the natural way the game is going. We should just let it happen. But, I mean, part of the reason football's pace has increased is because rules have changed, and, and rules have, have, have changed to benefit the offense. Because I think the people that, that run the game understand that, you know, the casual fan likes seeing offense. And I think the same, there's a balance of basketball, but I think the same is generally true, that people don't want to see a bunch of 55 to 45 games. You know, they'd rather see 70 to 69 or 80 to 79. And, and you know, that's somehow we need to get there, and it's, it's, but it's not going to be an easy journey. Yeah, I mean, sports have a history and a culture, and the history and culture of basketball, like this kind of trend in college basketball is in defiance of that. And some people have described it as pacism, the idea that like teams like Wisconsin and Virginia that play slower are boring, even if they do play really well and each possession is quality. But, it, you know, I think there's something to the idea that Virginia in a game recently beat Syracuse by double digits after scoring two points in the first 13 minutes of the game. Like well, that that's seems reverse re- paceism, isn't it? <laughs> that, that is <laughs> that is reverse paceism. That seems wrong that you can win a game after scoring two points in the first thirteen minutes. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, and I think so. There's a, there's another issue here where you know, both Virginia and Wisconsin they actually, especially when Virginia had Justin Anderson, they both played really efficient offensive basketball. So you know, watching a slow paced game with those teams is actually not that painful. It can be pretty easy to watch at times. You know, you're going to see some scoring. But when it goes wrong is the issue. And, you know, the first 10 minutes of that Syracuse game, it, it went wrong for Virginia. The next 10 minutes, they went great. They exploded and, and you know, you know, baskets were going from everywhere. But uh, but that's the issue. You can still, yeah, you can still have games that are great to watch that are slow paced. But the potential for, for a train wreck is, is much, much greater when you're watching a 55 possession game as opposed to a a 75 possession game. If we stipulate that fans like a little bit more offense and that the pace of play could increase for the better, how do we do that? How much of it do you think is tightening up on charges versus blocks? How much of it is maybe that the, the, the lane should be wider or that the three-point arc should be moved farther out? I and mean, which are the fundamental changes to the sport do you think need to be made? Well, I'm not a big fan of widening the lane. Uh, mainly because that just moves the offense further away from the basket and doesn't do anything about the defense. So that like, gives the defense an advantage. And that was actually tried in a rules experiment sometime in the last 10 to 15 years. The result was was decreased efficiency, lower scoring. Um, and I'm not a fan of moving the three-point line out, kind of for similar reasons, although I'm less uh, uh, strong about that issue. But certainly I think cleaning up the charges, I mean, just making it really difficult for – uh, secondary defender to take a charge, I think that gives the offense more incentive to uh, drive the lane. And that's a way to break down defenses. And, uh, you know, if, if guys aren't able to kind of step in and take a charge after the you know initial defender gets beat, I mean, I think that would be a good thing for the offense. And so in the NIT, they're going to experiment with this. They're going to take the, the current tiny charge circle in college basketball and expand it to the NBA dimensions and, and make that protected area a little bit bigger. They're going to lower the shot clock from 35 to 30. So we'll get a, a small indication if those rules are, are beneficial or not. And I think, you know, the third thing is really going back to to the ideas that we had before last season and, and, you know, make a concerted effort to clean up contacts on the ball handler, clean up contact on cutters. That seemed to work in the NBA, right? It worked. No, it worked in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they went through – the exact same situation, uh, you know, end of the 90s, early 2000s. The difference is the NBA has 30 teams and, you know, 100 officials and, and a single, you know, authority that oversees that. And it's much easier to implement 
changes in the way the game's called in the NBA than it is in, in college where you have, you know, officials are all independent and they're assigned by conference. And so it's hard to, you know, hurt the cats in that situation. But, uh, but I think we need to, we need to think along those lines and, and go forward with that just because, and, and, you know, really I thought it worked pretty well early last season. And then towards the end of the season, it was like, you know, the officials just kind of backed off and we got really quickly back into a, a case where there was, you know, the game was just extremely physical and, and low scoring and slow paced again. This has been college basketball in crisis. Crisis. Da, da, da. Ah! That was the doughy fish cheer, little boy. <laughs> Ken Pomeroy, thank you, uh, our crisis correspondent. And what you're saying is everyone should watch the NIT and ignore the NCAA tournament. The CBI the, is doing the 30 seconds. The NIT clock. is the future of basketball, the past, present, and future of basketball. Ken Pomeroy, thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks, guys. Ken Pomeroy is the man behind KenPom.com. He also said Syracuse. <laughs> you got to include in every back announce from now on the guest's pronunciation of Syracuse. We've got an interview coming up in a very little bit with Errol Morris, who's directed some of my favorite documentaries. And so it is fitting that our sponsor this week is The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the documentary series from HBO that's emerged from the minds of Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind the fantastic documentary film capturing the Freedmans. The premise here is that Robert Durst is a strange and creepy and very rich dude. And until now, he is a strange and creepy and very rich dude who has refused all interviews. But Durst talks in this six-part series, which airs Sundays at 8 on HBO, and the man says some very odd and interesting things. As a result of those odd and interesting things that Robert Durst says, and of the evidence uncovered by the filmmakers, the district attorney in Los Angeles is reopening the investigation into the death of a woman in December 2000 who is friends with Durst. The jinx was made with the cooperation of Robert Durst, and Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin calls it unnerving and engrossing. The jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst, airs on Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Amid all the news of cuts and signings in the opening few days of NFL free agency, one news item passed by relatively unremarked upon. Uh, Maurice Jones-Drew, who was drafted by the Jaguars in 2006 and played in the NFL for nine seasons, announced his retirement at the age of 29. Jones-Drew, who scored 15 touchdowns as a rookie and led the league in rushing yards as recently as 2011, had just 96 yards on the ground for Oakland last year before deciding to leave the game. And another sign of how running backs are valued these days, the two leaders and rushing attempts in the 2014 season were the Cowboys' DeMarco Murray and the Eagles' LaShawn McCoy. Dallas is allowing Murray to test free agency, choosing to place its franchise tag on wide receiver Des Bryant instead. Philly traded McCoy to Buffalo for linebacker Kiko Alonzo. A linebacker named Kiko is now more valuable than one of the league's best running backs. Uh, the decline of the running back is not breaking news. We talked about it in the Cretaceous era of Hang Up and Listen back in 2009. But the pace of the decline has accelerated since then, counter to the pace of college basketball. Can anything save the endangered NFL running back, Mike Pesca? Yes, I think perception can. But the important thing is that running backs are valued, but they stop being valued at around 30. And I think that's a rational valuation. Frank Gore had a decent season as a 30 year old. And there are some exceptions like, you know, Tiki Barber, mainly because he was really underused in the beginning of his career. But yeah, these guys, well, I added up all the hits that a running back and it's impossible because you don't know how often he's into block. But think about all the hits that the five foot eight Maurice Jones drew took in that year where he had 343 carries, was it? And he had, or maybe it was even 300. He, was, he had around 350 carries one year. He caught 40 passes. How many times did he go out for a pass and was separated from it by a defender? So he hit him. How many times would, did he stay into block? And also the kind of blocks that a running back will often take. And there's a big video of him decleating an opponent. You know, he, he, he will take an on rushing linebacker, um, in, in, 
Maurice Jones-Drew's case, a guy a lot bigger than him, running at full speed. So it's not a lineman-type block where you lock hands. Those guys often have leg injuries and lower injuries. These are the most vicious hits you could take, and there are hundreds of them. I mean, that year he got hit, I would estimate, around 500 times, and he carried the ball almost that many times for about three years. It's just impossible to survive at that pace. Maurice Jones-Drew, it turns out, was kind of a very typical career arc for a running back. Chase Stewart over at footballperspective.com has done a couple of studies, statistical analyses of how running backs age and how their performance declines. And Jones Drew led the league in rushing at 26. And Stewart's uh, look at a lot of running backs and their numbers show that running backs peak at 26 and then they begin a very, very steady decline. And that even if you do well at 29 or 30 or even 31 in those rare cases, there's no guarantee you're going to have a good season at 29 or 30 or 31 or 32. Um, so it's it's pretty it, – you look at the lines and it's dramatic. And I think I think athletes are starting to realize that. I think running backs are starting to realize that. Rashard Mendenhall retired what we would consider early. You know, go back to 2001 when Robert Smith of the Minnesota Vikings retired when he was still in the 20s. So there's a recognition among the players that my longevity is not – real. My longevity is not going to take me to the, my mid-30s the way it does for other position players. The NFL has certainly recognized this trend. Um, Bishop Sankey was the first running back taken in the 2014 draft, 54th overall. There wasn't a first round running back taken the previous year either. Um, uh, Rob Weintraub did a story for Slate um, about running backs a few years ago noted that they have the shortest careers of any position group, mm-hmm. two and a half years. They suffer more season-ending injuries than other players. And the way that the league CBA is set up now, um, there's really not any way for a mid-tier running back to make a decent living playing football. Like, And, and that's even, you say... Well, define decent. what you mean by decent living playing football. I mean, I think that it's reasonable to say that even by comparison to like a good white collar job because, Mm -hmm. okay, LaShawn McCoy gets a four-year rookie deal. He got $1.5 million guaranteed money. He got the next big guaranteed deal, $20 million, because he was the best running back in the league at that point. But for the average guy, if you're not going to have anything beyond that rookie deal, you make $1.5 million for four years, if you even make it that long, that's like 400000 per year. And then you're just like done with your entire career at age right. 25. Right. Um, you don't have like, you know, you're not working into your 40s or your 50s. And so the question is, um, and Mike, you raised this in our pre-show uh, chatter. I still think that in in middle school and in high school, the best, biggest, baddest kid plays running back like yeah i think you want to play quarterback it's pretty clear who can or can't you want the ball a kid wants the ball so that's the number one position you don't have to rely on anyway it's the most fun position to play if you could play it but body type everyone playing running back almost everyone playing running back could also play linebacker and if all these guys had made that choice they'd have many years onto their career of course there'd be no one running the ball i also was looking i'll throw this out there I don't know if this is significant. Maybe the entire world of football is changing towards youth. But last year was the first year that there was no 1,100-yard. Now, I didn't go by the 1,000-yard receiving metric, but I I chose 1,100. There was no 1,100-yard receiver who was over 30 years old. The only other time that's ever happened is, I think, 2008. Um, if you go by yards per game, I think I put in 75 yards per game and up. There was no one in their 30s. So recently, you know, Larry Fitzgerald uh, had been a very effective receiver into his 30s. Andre Johnson had been a very effective receiver as a 31-year-old. Both those guys fell off last year. Right, guy like Both Ryan in horrible White. quarterback situations, though. Yeah, sure. But it, maybe it's a coincidence. But, you know, receiver for the first time, even Calvin Johnson, 28 seems to be falling off a little bit. And all these great receivers are guys who are, you know, 25. It's just hard to, back to running back, to think of another similar situation in sports where the kind of glory position, and it still is a very glorified position, It's especially, I think, in college football, um, but also in the pros, is also the most expendable and the least well-remunerated. And you have teams relying on guys who are undrafted, um, who are, you know, cheaper than 
somebody like a LaShawn McCoy who did um, just get money from uh, from the Bills. He's only 26, so he's got a few years left. But it's like these these famous guys are just throwing themselves into a volcano, and then there's just other guys lined up to replace them. And the Weintraub piece that I mentioned earlier, the the premise of that was that running backs shouldn't have the same uh, rules applied to them for early entry into the NFL draft. Maurice Claret tried to get that overturned. But you have guys like, you know, whether it's somebody like Todd Gurley, who, you know, has a knee injury and presumably his pro career will be worse due to the punishment he took in college, or, you know, even guys who don't have a serious career threatening injury, who are just taking these 500 hits or, you know, whatever the number is, Mike, and are just Mm -hmm. taking those hits in an uncompensated fashion, like a guy like Leonard Fournette for LSU, who's the number one recruit coming out of high school, can't go pro for three years, is physically, you know, ready to do so. Every hit that he takes shortens his eventual NFL career and his money-making opportunities. Like, every single thing is lined up to make running backs' careers worse. Was it Marcus Lattimore, the 49ers drafted? He had knee problems in college. He He had an insurance policy at least. He had an insurance policy at least, right. Yeah. But insurance policies pay out uh, not for diminution, not for uh, falling back two rounds mm-hmm. in the draft because of They do, actually. His his policy did pay for him falling out of the first round. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good job. Good job, policy. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. Pat that policy on the rump. I mean, if the NFL is recognizing this trend, I mean, it's certainly something that some coaches recognized decades ago. I mean, you know, at least a couple decades ago. I mean, Mike Shanahan was either criticized or praised for, for operating running back by committee when he was in Denver. And the general trend in the NFL is to lean away from older players. Uh, the Boston Globe last year uh, looked at the age trends in the NFL overall. 380 players over age 30 in 2010, 312 players over the age of 30 in 2013. So you just wonder, I, th- I think part of the issue here is that the generation of coaches and commentators come from a more running back centric smash mouth Oh, God. Era? So, right. They're so wrong. You know, Merrill, Merrill Hodge going on and everyone. If you don't establish the run, it's so wrong. But, yes, you're right. So I wonder if – let's, you know, fast forward 20 years when the people who are talking about the game and coaching the game came up in this more passing-centric era. Will that mean that the best athletes will be pushed to other positions? Does that mean that anything substantive about running backs uh, will change? I mean, sure. Why not? I mean, if Chip Kelly can redesign and get people rethinking how offenses should be run generally, what's to see a overhaul in the general structure of the sport, the positions and what we emphasize and what we de-emphasize? How many running backs you carry on a roster? How many times you deploy a running back in the backfield? How many you deploy in the backfield? Why can't that change? I mean, just sort of like your general, you know, when we think about what a basic formation in football football is, I think it's certainly conceivable that in 20 years, the running back won't be part of the equation in the same way that it is now. It will look different. The way that fullbacks don't really exist anymore. I would also say that there's an element to it. Uh, The nature of the position is such that experience and savvy probably don't pay off as much in running back as they do in quarterback. And also there's just so much, there's uh, only so much a running back can do to adjust his game. So it's not like Michael Jordan becoming an outside shooter or Peyton Manning with his, uh, you know, weak noodle arm learning smarter ways to get the ball to open receivers. Uh, I think running backs have to be fast and strong, and once you lose 10% of that, the next guy's fast and strong. doesn't matter how smart you are. You know, to some limited extent it does, but I think there are diminishing returns as far as experience with running back much more than any other position. No, it's, really, it's interesting. It was one of the comments on one of those Chase Stewart columns on Football Perspective, a commenter pointed out that most running backs, there isn't a great difference among running backs. Even the greatest running backs don't average four or five yards per carry more than 50 or 60% of the time. If they get to 60%, it's extremely rare. I mean, he, this guy said there was like one instance of that in recent seasons, and that even the great years with the great backs, gaining four or more yards per carry happens less than 50% of the time, typically, so that anybody can rush for three or four yards. And what separates the greatest running backs is the ability to do something in the open field when they get beyond the, beyond the defensive line. 
Yeah, there's just something sad and kind of perverse, especially in college football with like the quality that gets you the most notice and attention and touted as a potential great player is the same one that hastens your demise. Like when you see a guy like Fournette or Todd Gurley running over dudes in an uncompensated manner, it's just like you can see the cash register running backwards. Yeah, right. so what you need to do is establish yourself as an excellent, like a, a great freshman year, have a couple good games, and then commit a crime or sign a, autogra- a violation. Sign autographs. Sign an yes, autograph. That's, that's really the perfect get a violation. Tattoo. No one thinks you're a bad person. <laughs> Maybe you could do, how about this? Like, get a contract where you sell your services to a charity, right? Like, cut an album, sell it to <laughs> charity. Cut an album. Right, do, yeah, be like a really good, uh, take a role in a Hollywood movie, get banned by the NCAA, become a martyr, go to the NFL. There's your, there's my advice to you. That's my insurance policy. Right. And I want to say a few words about Slate Plus, our membership program, where for $5 a month or $50 a year, you can get extra stories and access to members-only events and extra segments on this podcast, as well as the political and culture gab fests. On the political gab fest this past week, David Plotz argued that Parks and Rec is the best show ever made about politics. Why would David Plotz say such a thing? To hear his explanation, you have to sign him for Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash hangup plus to hear it. That is slate.com slash hangup plus. He just said it to get a rise out of Emily. Emily loves the show. She watches it with her kids. They love it. She's seen episodes multiple times. Stefan. Last week was Errol Morris week on the website Grandland. And if you missed it, then please pause this podcast and step into the time machine immediately to your right now that we are all in the same chunk of space-time, I can tell you that Morris, the director of such documentary features as The Thin Blue Line, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and the Oscar-winning The Fog of War, has made six short films for ESPN under the rubric, It's Not Crazy, It's Sports. Those six shorts are about electric football, a stolen jersey, Ty Cobb's dentures, a love affair between a man and a horse, a man with a giant baseball for a head, and a guy who runs around naked. Let's listen to the first 40 seconds of The Streaker, Morris's film about an Englishman named Mark Roberts who gets his jollies by prancing around in the buff. What's your first question? I don't have a first question. What's your first answer? (laughs) I live for fun. Adventure. More importantly, I love making people laugh. And I've found a very unique, crazy way of doing that to tens of thousands of people each time I perform. And that minute before, my heart is banging like crazy. Errol Morris, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking to me. And and I do have a I first question. I could be quest- just another one of those crazy people babbling <laughs> on some street corner and you just walk past me and shake your head. But it's very nice of you to engage me. How do we know you're not standing on a street corner right now? Oh, I'm in my office. I could be later in the day. How do we know you're clothed? So many questions. <laughs> I do have a first question for you, Errol Morris. Uh, you did not have a first question for Mark Roberts. And my first question for you is, why did you not have a first question for that guy? Because I never have a first question. It's my favorite, favorite opening, because at least it captures the way I do things. I was... In the process of interviewing The Bad Apples, a movie about Abu Ghraib, standard operating procedure. And a friend of mine, Philip Gravich, and I were writing a book based on the interviews. And he said to me, you know, you always start every interview the same way. Uh, and I said, how's that? And he said, you always tell the interviewee you don't know where to start, and I usually don't. And it's captured in that Mark Roberts interview perfectly because we start, and he asks me, what's your first question? And I tell him, I don't have a first question. What's your first answer? Then he is off and running. And he runs without clothes, but you didn't ask him why he runs naked. What what the nudity brings to it for him. Why didn't you ask him about why he prefers to be in the buff? I don't know. 
And maybe just the fact of it was enough. <laughs> uh, I can't think of a single interview I've ever done where somebody doesn't say, why didn't you ask him or her X or Y or Z? Hmm. Why didn't you ask them that, huh? Huh, buddy? I didn't use that exact tone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll ask you a why. Implied. I'll ask you a why question. Why sports a and why these subjects? And feel free to pick one or two of them as you. Why elucidate. sports? Because ESPN was paying for it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so you're saying if Animal Planet was your sponsor, we'd get a different focus? <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> well, is there something about sports that you have been attracted to? What is it about these stories that? I was you want to make really movies about attracted them. to the fact that ESPN was willing to pay for them. <laughs> so they remind me of. Uh, so the subjects here remind me of if any of your movies, fast, cheap, and out of control, obsessives, not famous people, right? So it's very different from McNamara. It's very different from perhaps someone who doesn't necessarily want to reveal everything. Um, did no, they remind criminals, for example? Yeah. Yeah. Did these guys, did Mr. Met, did the auction obsessive remind you of the lion tamer, the topiary gardener, the mole rat guy from Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control? At the time, no. But shortly after finishing them, people said, this is a lot like Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and hard to argue. But it wasn't on my mind while I was making them. Where'd the idea come from? Why these, why these topics? They were brokered between ESPN, me, my producers, principally Jesse Wan, the advertising agency that was involved, Wyden and Kennedy. Everybody had their own opinion about what these topics should be. I had my favorites, certainly. And in fact, I like almost all of them. Uh, I was not a big fan of heist going into it because I felt... You know, this is just a goddamn fraternity prank. <laughs> but there was something more to it. Uh, I guess that's the trick, is trying to find something unexpected or surprising in a story that seems pretty clear-cut going into it. So Heist, we should inform our viewers, is uh, uh, the shortest, I think, of the films that you made. And it's about a, a group of Duke students who steal a gigantic Michael Jordan replica jersey that hung from the or hangs from the top of the Dean Dome at the University of North Carolina. They fail. I mean, they get the thing down, but they don't get it out of the building until a few weeks later because they're afraid they're going to get caught. And then they fail in their attempts to unfurl it in front of uh, fans at a Duke North Carolina game. Evidently, over the weekend, there was a Duke-North Carolina game, and there must have been millions of hits on this thing, of just people going to that game or aware of that game, following that game, who heard about this short for ESPN and wanted to see it. I'd like to say, a couple of times in this interview, you've said, hey, you've very honestly said, I did sports because ESPN was the client, and I chose subjects because, I mean, as you said, there was a lot of brokering involved. Now, you've directed commercials, uh, but you've also directed Academy Award-winning movies, which were certainly more labors of love. Did you look at this project more like the commercials, where you can bring your artistry and you can find interesting things there, or did you look at it more like um, a, a directorial endeavor of your choosing? Commercials can be a labor of love. I don't think that they should be excluded uh, from that arena. And uh, I sometimes, in fact, describe my Rumsfeld film as a labor of hate. <laughs> so I don't think it's clear-cut in that way. Or at least I would resist that explanation. So do you see, do you see the, some sort of continuum here from commercial work through the fog of war? And if so, if there is some, some kind of continuum, where do these, these little vignettes about sports fit? Well, I've always done movies about obsessives, compulses, eccentrics, etc., etc., etc. This movie, if you want to call it a movie, is 
like fast, cheap, and out of control. It's also like Vernon, Florida. Uh, I've been doing this thing, this sort of thing, for years. And there was a whole period of time where no one would give me money to work in the 1980s, where I kept proposing one eccentric subject after another. People just wouldn't pay for it. When people come up to me, for example, and they say, I have a really great idea for a movie. And I always say, well, do you have a great idea of who's <laughs> going to pay for it? <laughs> so Vernon, Florida was known as Nub City because of people cutting off their limbs to get insurance money, right? It was known in the insurance trade as Nub City. The Nub City story has nothing to do with the movie that I made. Right, because the you wanted to make that movie and your subjects threatened to kill you? Something like that. <laughs> I got beaten up down there by the son-in-law of a nubby. So I guess that's a different kind of thing. It's not so much a threat as a physical <laughs> assault. <laughs> right. Once you're assaulted, the threat part of it sort of uh, recedes in memory, doesn't it? <laughs> like right before he might have announced that he was going to assault you, but yes. People are surprised. I guess I'm surprised that they're surprised that I do this kind of stuff. The Electric Football League could come right out of the world of Vernon, Florida. It's a portrait in, in Vernon, Florida of a group of people living in a town in the Florida Panhandle. Here it's a group of people in the subterranean stadium, a basement electric football league uh, outside of Rochester, New York. And the stories are wonderful. I have to say, of, of all the, the films, those characters were certainly the warmest, and I felt like I got to know them. That there was there was some there was some there to their to their characters and their personalities because they were these obsessives, and I'm also attractive to obsessives and and, and cultures like this. Does your empathy level or your your feeling of connectedness to the people that you're making a, a film about does it sort of go up? Are you happier? Are you more engaged when you're around a group of people like the the electric football guys? Yes. That's a simple answer. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I love those guys. And I loved her. I love the commissioner's wife most of all. She was terrific. Is it true that you do not have stereoscopic vision? I've never had it, no. So does that mean that you were not able to play sports? It actually does mean that I was not terribly good at sports. I mean, people would throw a baseball at me, and usually it would hit me in the head rather than I would catch it. So no, I've never, I've never liked team sports in particular, although I became a rock climber, a different kind of enterprise altogether. Playing sports is one thing. Were you, all, were you a fan of sports? Are um, you a fan of sports? Not so much, really. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in people who are interested in sports, but I myself am not the kind of person who looks forward to retiring over the weekend and watching a whole set of football or basketball uh, or baseball games. Which is good. I mean, I want to commission that kind of person if they're an interesting person because they could see things differently than what the sports obsessive would see. And they maybe you were able to recognize things that were more interesting than the person steeped in it would be able to recognize. Well, when I first started doing advertising years and years and years ago, I would find myself in a car with people from an advertising agency, and they would just simply talk about sports. And I thought, oh my God, unless I talk about sports, I'm never going to be hired to do this kind of work. So I would pretend to be engaged or pretend to be interested. Now I don't do that anymore. I haven't done it for years. I sometimes tell people, actually, what you just said, you're better off with me because I'll see things that the other person will ignore. And as a result, by the way, I've done I don't know. I've probably done over a thousand commercials. I've done hundreds of sports commercials. Yeah, you've done work for Nike, yeah. Reebok, Adidas, right? Everybody. Yeah. So who have even done them for the National Football League? So who are the athletes that you worked with in uh, your commercial work who you found that you were the most fascinated by or were the most engaged with? I've just done so many, 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 many of them. But Tim Tebow is one of my favorites. And how, how come? What was the ad that you did with him? Um, I did for an energy drink, and we were shooting.
shooting out in Denver, where he was playing for the Broncos in those days. He was having trouble throwing the football. Should I even tell these stories? Now I'm embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Please continue. Go on. They asked me, the agency, the advertising agency, asked me if I would be willing to interview him. I was doing straight commercials. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. We could set up the Interatron quickly, and, and we could do an interview with Tim Tebow. I never knew what happened to that. It was a wonderful interview. I remember he was telling me how his family were missionaries in the Philippines. He grew up in the Philippines. And they were taken hostage by left-wing guerrillas. And at some point I said, because the story was shocking, I said, Jesus! Yeah. <laughs> and Tim Tebow said, almost under his breath, bless the Lord. Errol, you, uh, in, 1991, in 1991, you made... Uh a documentary about Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time, same title as his book. Have you seen The Theory of Everything? I haven't. Do you want to see it? Or do you feel that, you know, is there some gulf between fiction and reality that you're not interested in visiting? It's not that I'm not interested in visiting the gulf between fiction and reality. In fact, it's the gulf that we all inhabit. It's just that I made that movie and have strong feelings about it. Look at all of these projects I've done. I did a project on Temple Grandin years and years ago. I was the first really to make a movie about her. And then, you know, it became a very popular thing. People made other documentaries, and then there was an HBO feature. Yeah. Just didn't want to see these, because I felt that I'd been down that road in some form already. Errol, uh, hopefully we can unearth that Tim Tebow interview footage. But if not, these six uh, short-seated for ESPN and Grandland um, are great for sports fans. Everybody should check them out. Um, and thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, thank you. Errol Morris is a director of documentary features, shorts, and commercials. You can catch his uh, six shorts for ESPN on Grandland. All right, now it is time. For the afterballs, I wanted to see if Errol could, if if he could help me make a connection between Nub City and Dunk City. They're both in Florida, Florida Gulf Coast. But I, I didn't know if he would be able to follow follow that one with me. I don't know if he would have been as captivated by Florida Gulf Coast's uh, tournament run behind Brett Comer. Chase Feeler and the gang. Uh, would it be Would it be odd if he just had lit up at that point? Like, now that's the one team that I got obsessed with. When they packed the zone with the two three two, here I bust out a little uh, magnet board. He's like, "Here's what you got to do. You got to run baseline and kick it outside." All right, but Interatron. He didn't mention inter- the he Interatron. Mentioned it, but he didn't explain what it is. Yeah, I thought we could do Interatrons for our uh, afterballs. It's like a teleprompter, but you see Errol Morris's face instead of words on it. Yeah. Which is yeah. really what, what you want to see. If I was running the Interatron, it would not be Errol Morris's face. Yeah, it's not a requirement that it be Errol Morris's face, but it That's just allows it. It allows the interviewee to look directly into the camera and see the interrogator, whether it's Errol Morris or Mike Pesca or someone mm-hmm. from the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you go. All right, Mike, what is your Interatron? Well, this weekend on Meet the Press, Senator Lindsey Graham, pretty brazenly, proudly told Chuck Todd, I don't use email. This is the sort of thing that maybe people of a certain age, a certain privilege brag about. People like sitting U.S. senators and I have noticed in my life, head coaches. There is just a thing, especially if you're old, about bragging about not using email. For instance, Dick Bennett, who won nearly 500 basketball games. We were just talking about the uh, pack line defense. This is the guy who invented it. So would it surprise you that a guy who likes games to be won 49 to 41 would say this, quote, I'm not sure I could do that, meaning taking a whole new training period to be technologically savvy. I wouldn't want to do that either. I don't text. 
I don't email. I have always preferred the personal touch. Now, sometimes when you don't use email, the guy will jokingly admit it or call himself a dinosaur or say, oh, I'm so out of it. I have an assistant set me up on email. But other times, like Brady Hoke, not an old guy. Brady Hoke says he could deal without most types of electronic communication. I wouldn't use Twitter, Hoke said Wednesday during National Signing Day news conference. I'm not real big into any of that. I don't Facebook. I don't Twitter. I don't email. If I want to talk to you, I'll call you up and we'll talk. So again, it's the personal touch aspect of it as opposed to I am just a Luddite. Digger Phelps does not use Twitter. I don't own a computer, he said, pulling out a stack of cards. Send me a text. I'll call you back. But I think the most famous person or the one that I always see patting himself on the back for having nothing to do with technology and maybe having an assistant set up email and Twitter is Tom Coughlin of the Giants. And in fact, not only does he not use Twitter, not only does he not email and doesn't know how to email, and he says, my kids always tell me stuff about this email. He also, during a a news conference last year, made a reference to music in the locker room. And he started to say something like, I don't know, those little things, where's that music? Wait, what? What do you call that thing they come from? And the PR guy leans in and says, uh, it's an iPod. And Coughlin said, what's an iPod? I see everybody with these things sticking out of their ears all the time. What the heck? What? What? You need music to run? You can't exercise without music? What the heck? Let me just say, by being so antiquated, Coughlin is actually cutting edge because they're not even making iPods anymore. So now Tom Coughlin and your average tech-savvy seven-year-olds will both be saying, what's an iPod? The seven-year-old, however, will know how to email. So when I wrote my book about football, Mike, Mike Shanahan, former head coach of the Denver Broncos, told me he didn't have an email account, didn't know how to use the email. When he got fired by the Broncos during his year off from the NFL, he told me he learned how to use email. But then in 2013, when he was hired by the Washington football team, he said that he doesn't use the email or know how to use the email. It's such a brag. It's such it's a, a brag. it's it's luddite brag. It's a dumble it's, such a, it's a, a dumble brag. Yeah. Uh he just spent that year learning how to use email so he wouldn't accidentally use it. Good point. Later. Thanks. Yeah. Stefan, what's your interatron? Well, it goes without saying that a lot of foreign athletes work in the United States more than ever. Uh, The NBA put out a press release in October trumpeting the fact that of the 450 or so players on opening night rosters, a record 101 were internationals, about a quarter of Major League Baseball players, National Hockey League players, Major League Soccer players are foreigners. All of those athletes need work visas to get into the United States. And given the numbers, it would seem that it's pretty easy to get a work visa to play sports in America. But last week, the United States government denied the visa application of Natasha Harding of Wales, who was to have joined the Washington spirit of the National Women's Soccer League. Now, this looked weird to me. I mean, what possible reason would the United States government have to refuse the admission to this great nation of a Welsh woman who wants to play footy at the highest level, especially when, based on my by no means in-depth internet research, it appears that visa rejection for team athletes are pretty rare, but it does happen. Team athletes who want to play in the USA usually get what's known as a P1 visa. According to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, team athletes must have achieved significant international recognition in the sport and the league or event must be distinguished and require the participation of athletic teams of international recognition. Similar rules apply for individual athletes, though they often have to apply for a different visa, the B1 visitor visa. But visas do get denied. Pretty much every spring you'll read about baseball players, usually from Latin America, whose visas are rejected. The New York Times reported in 2011 that 17 players had visas denied that spring. The most common reasons for visa rejections in baseball, the Times said, are criminal convictions, mostly for drunk driving, followed by substance abuse including performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, In 2012, an English striker for the New York Red Bulls, Luke Rogers, had to move back to Europe when his visa renewal was rejected. How come? No one would say, but stories noted that Rogers had a criminal record in England. In the last decade, individual athletes in sports like tennis and running have reportedly had a harder time getting their visas approved, mostly non-elite athletes who have a tough time proving that they're internationally recognized. A 2012 ESPN story highlighted Kenyan runners, including a world champion whose applications for visas to run in U.S. races had been denied. 
On the other hand, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services did in 2013 issue P-1 visas to a Korean World of Warcraft star and a Canadian League of Legends star developments that confirmed that gaming is a sport. The oddest brouhaha over a visa rejection occurred in November when Israeli point guard Gal Mekel couldn't sign with the Indiana Pacers after he was cut by the Dallas Mavericks because of delays with his visa renewal. That led to stories in conservative and Israeli media speculating that Mekel's visa was, wasn't extended as the Daily Caller headlined because he's Israeli. Breitbart.com wrote breathlessly, State Department refuses visa extension for Israeli NBA player as Obama announces doubling Chinese student visas. Meckel's visa was renewed a couple of weeks later. He was signed by the New Orleans Pelicans, but he was cut after playing in just four games. As for Natasha Harding, the Welsh soccer player, the league is certainly internationally recognized. It gives three roster slots on each team for international players, and Harding does play for the Welsh national team, so she is also internationally recognized. But there are lots of reasons why the government can deny a visa, and the spirit won't say why Harding's was. So who knows? Maybe the State Department worried that she might be related to Tanya Harding. I sent messages to Natasha Harding on Facebook and Twitter. She didn't respond. She did, however, favorite one of those tweets. <laughs> She's out there. That's a response. Yeah. Is that a response? She, that didn't respond, a response? she didn't respond to Mike Shanahan would say he didn't understand that. It's not a response. He doesn't understand the Twitter. I think clicking a star is a response. Yeah. What's that? Something you do on your iPod? I think so. I think Josh, 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 what's your Interatron? A couple of weekends ago, bantamweight mixed martial artist Ronda Rousey beat challenger Kat Zingano in 14 seconds using her famous arm bar to hold on to her UFC women's bantamweight title. This was fast for Rousey, but not that much faster than her previous two title defenses, which lasted 66 seconds and 16 seconds, respectively. Here's what UFC impresario Dana White had to say after Rousey's latest victory. This, this Katz and Gano fight, I was like, man, th this fight's going to be a war. Katz, strong, tough, durable, you know. Wrong. I don't. What do I do with this girl? What do I do with this girl? I, she's, you know, I keep joking, saying she's going to have to fight men, but I'm serious. It isn't just Dana White. This is how... A lot of men assess Ronda Rousey by pondering whether she could beat a man. After the Zingano fight, a 2011 video resurfaced in which a dude challenged Rousey's abilities. This is what happened. As a beginner who's never competed in judo and who has a white belt on, I've got to be honest. I don't think you have as much strength and can compete with a man, even though I'm a white belt. You know how to push my buttons. That was exactly how to get me to throw you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I felt my ribs crush. I landed on my balls and my ribs. Is this a genuine reaction? I'm sorry, man. I felt my ribs break, I think. Are you serious? I think so. Oh, no. I definitely felt my ball smashing the cup and something smashing my ribs. While that was a worthy successor to Idiocracy's Ow My Balls, you can be assured that Rousey-centric stupidity flourishes in all mediums. Go on any message board populated by dudes of a certain age, and that age is any age between birth and death, and you will find a multi-page thread titled, How Long Would You Last with Ronda Rousey? These threads proceed in a predictable manner. Post one, you talking about fighting or sex? Post two, she is used to throwing around 135-pound women. I would destroy her because no way could she judo slam me the way she does the girls. Also, she is not hot. I would not touch her. And then post three, the voice of reason pipes up. Realistically, I think the vast majority of message board guys would underestimate her speed and aggressiveness. I'm going to put in the you think emoji right here. Uh, in fairness to men who do mostly suck, but a lot of them do say that having a penis does not guarantee success in a fight <laughs> against the world's most dominant female mixed martial artist. It's not like kryptonite to Superman. <laughs> it doesn't sap her of her power. <laughs> not quite. Uh, MMA commentator slash guy who is on news radio, Joe Rogan, says he thinks Rousey could beat 50% of the men in the UFC's bantamweight division. 
and probably most of the guys on a rival's message board. I was also part of an email thread in which one of my very good friends asked another of my very good friends who does train in martial arts how long he could last in the ring with Rousey. He estimated seven seconds, which he then revised down to five seconds upon thinking about it for a few hours. Uh, but even when these conversations tilt towards reverence for Rousey's talents, the mere raising of the question creates the feeling that her domination of her sport and athletes of her own gender is not enough, that a woman who kicks other women's asses is fighting in the minor leagues. For her part, Razzy says she's not interested in joining Andy Kaufman among the ranks of intergender wrestlers, answering a question from ESPN's Doug Gottlieb by saying, me fighting a man will change the perception of a woman being an inferior creature. Is that what you're saying? I really don't think that's necessary. And in response to that, a guy on a message board somewhere is surely saying, no way could she judo slam me the way she slams those girls. Men rule. It's not having a penis that's the disqualifier. It's having an arm to which she'd bar and if you didn't submit, would break. We'd love your feedback and what we talked about today, gender studies and otherwise. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our roster at itunes.com slash panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Remember Zelmo Beatty, B-E-A-T-Y. And thanks for listening. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.